everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk to you about some things you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how nice it is to have a long weekend. Oh my goodness. I mean, even working from home, it's nice to have just this extra day off once in a while. Yeah. It's like, I, I took some days off and it's like, oh boy, this is nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I was just thinking like, I need a mental health day. And I'm like, I can hold out till Labor Day. I can do it. And I did. And it's back into it tomorrow. Although I do have some freelance work to get done today. Yeah. And of course, you know, I took some time off and I think I went full suburban and did lawn work with my time off. Because what else am I going to do right now? I mean, let's be honest. Clean the house. What else am I going to do? Our yard, it was a hot mess, so. Yeah, we um we kind of didn't go into it for half of July and all of August because it was too goddamn hot. Yeah. And it got overgrown. It got real overgrown. I, like, went out with a machete. Literally with a machete. It was great. <sighs> it's from my zombie apocalypse kit. It's true. Um, Buy them online at our web store. Um, it's a, <laughs> it is a bedazzled machete. It is quite stunning. I absolutely would bedazzle a machete. There actually are bedazzled machetes on Etsy. I don't see why we can't do this. So I guess what you're saying is we need to start selling bedazzled machetes. Yes, bedazzled machetes and other things related to stuff that we say. Yeah. Oh, God. We say lots of stuff and none of it makes sense. No, I, and that's not just on the podcast. I'm basically a nonstop narrative. Yeah, she is. And yesterday she was like looking at science experiments that happened by accident. They were just pictures. They were just pictures of neat things. And I was trying to guess what it was based on her reactions to it. He got two of them right. I got two of them right. And he was close on some others, but they were just super bizarre. I did skip several of them because they were stupid. Yeah, lots of things are stupid. Um, also, another good life advice. Skip stupid things. Yeah. Except our podcast. You should listen to all of it. Don't skip us. We're really, really important. But other things that you find stupid. We think we're funny. We do think we're funny. It's the only way we've survived this quarantine. We uh, saw this meme this week that was uh, the best part about being married is doing bits that you know annoy your spouse. And we went through like all the bits we do to each other and we realized that none of them annoy us. I think we realized that we have both been trained from basically since birth to just commit to bits. Uh-huh. And so when the other one starts doing a bit, like I have no choice but to go along with it. And it's the best and worst thing about being married. Yep. Austin has this long running thing where Ernest Hemingway punched the ocean yeah. as an excuse for why Austin hates the ocean, I think. I don't know. It it made sense at one point, but it's warped into this monstrosity. And then I think the most common thing I do is in response to a lot of things you say, I'm not, a, I, I say, I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> and after what you've just said, I don't think I even want to be that anymore. <laughs> um, which I'm so excited because this coming Sunday is a table read of The Princess Bride and they're doing it to raise money for the Wisconsin Democrats. Uh, so I definitely bought us access to that. Nice. So I think we're just going to sit back, we're going to watch it, and I guess eat Princess Bride food. Eels? Screeching eels. <laughs> yes, we're going to... Actually, eel is our favorite sushi. We it could is. order sushi. You could order sushi and say... Wow. We're just planning a weekend on our podcast. <laughs> eat this the, is the eat type some of... sushi, con- drink some poisoned wine, debate who should drink which go- goblet. Um, I poisoned both the gauntlet- goblets. I've just built up a resistance to Novocaine powder. Iocane. Uh, Novocaine doesn't work on me. And I would imagine since Iocane ends in cane, that probably doesn't work on me either because lidocaine also doesn't work on me. But what about cocaine? I've never done cocaine, but I would assume not. Yeah. Woo. Fascinating stuff, folks. Mm Mm-hmm. 
This is why you come listen to us every week. Although, but I did look it up. The Canes, cocaine, lidocaine, novocaine are the same family. They are very closely related. So cocaine probably wouldn't work on me, but I have no intention of finding out. I like my sinuses. It sounds expensive and like, ugh. It's like everyone, everyone we know who's on cocaine is annoying. It's like, do you just want to be annoying? Because... Yeah, and it, it destroys your sinal pra- passages, sinus passages, and your brain, and yeah. I mean... Sinal Passage? Ooh, that sounds like a great name for a metal band. Are you thinking of Spinal Tap? Yes. <laughs> All right, well, I say let's crack into it. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so I get to go first this week, because... It, you get to, you know, have what you want once in a while. Yeah, I get to have what I want once in a while. And because, for those of you listening to this, yesterday was Labor Day. And today is Labor Day. Today is Labor Day for us because yeah. we were like, even though we had literally all the time in the world, we just didn't record yesterday. So we're just doing it super late and I'm going to well, be like editing right up to the wire on this one. It's mostly my fault because I went on a really long walk in billion degree heat and ended up with com- like severe dehydration and a massive headache. So I was just out. I was down for the count. Yeah. It's Labor Day or it's this Labor Day season. <laughs> It's like Christmas, but with only one day off and no presents. Yeah. But there's mattress sales, I think. I, who knows anymore? Like, oh my God. We're in such a, we're in the darkest timeline. You might have to pay full price for mattresses right now. I feel like I'm like, I am like drifting through the world as like a mere observer. Yeah. I, it's ugh, it's ugh. crazy. So we learn about some of the results of the labor movement in school. Like, you know, kids no longer had to work in dangerous conditions. There was child labor laws, like all of this stuff. Like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you don't have to worry about being mangled by the equipment at your job and then just being fired. I mean, you still do, but we pretend yeah. that's not the case. It's less of a problem. Mm-hmm. But we don't learn about any of the stuff that actually went into ending it. Yeah, there were some protests and that was it, right? Oh, there was a lot. <laughs> so this was a massive movement that went on for over a hundred years and is still going on to an extent. But I'm just going to talk about one specific group that was kind of like the big group of its time and one of the largest single single labor unions in history. I'm going to talk about the Knights of Labor. Knights with a K? Knights with a K. It's like, no, the Knights of Labor is the... Um, the graveyard wor- shift workers? No, the Knights of Labor is the uh, late night erotic podcast in which we talk about the sexy figures of the labor movement. <laughs> And then when we run out of topics for that, we start talking about birth. (laughs) It is either a way less sexy or way more, depending on your kink. Ew! (laughs) Yeah, um, my my bad joke there um, actually physically hurt our cat. He cried out in pain. Hi, buddy. So yeah, the Knights of Labor. They were founded in 1869. Nice. They were originally the holy and noble order of the Knights of Labor. Fezzik tried to pull out the microphone. They were founded as a secret society by Philadelphia garment workers, and they were kind of akin to the stonemasons at first, because that's what a lot of labor unions were. It was just people in a trade who formed a secret society. And that's what the Knights of Labor were originally. Mm -hmm. But when the National Labor Union, which was the first like big attempt at having a nationwide coalition of local trade groups... Uh, it collapsed in 1873, and the Knights of Labor kind of fumbled into filling that void. They First of all, they fired their founder. They fired the guy who discovered them. Yes. And they hired Terrence V. Powderly to be newly in charge. He was the mayor of Scranton. Fezzik, come here. You grabbed the mic cord. <laughs> yep, I got the mic cord. <laughs> you hold it. 
We're having di- oh. we're having technical cat difficulties. So Fezzik is our tripod. He does this thing where if he feels he can't safely jump up, he politely taps you on the leg to alert you of that he would like to come up, please. But he also got tangled in the cord. He's having a rough day. He's such a good boy. And he's digging his stub into my thigh. Okay. Yeah, so Terrence V. Powderly was the mayor of Scranton and the commissioner general of immigration. The Knights had about... 10,000 members when they put him in charge. And he, first of all, removed the holy and noble from the name and ended the Mason-like initiation rituals and secret society parts of it in a bid to get the Pope to remove the sanctions against uh, Catholics joining labor unions. Huh. Yeah, because apparently the Pope was against labor unions because of things like the Freemasons, which was a secret society. Um, And unlike the other uh, labor groups at the time, they were more open to who their members could be. It was not just white men in specific skilled labor trades. Uh, They had women members. They had skilled, semi-skilled, and unskilled workers in their ranks. They actually had African-American members and some integrated chapters, but there were also some segregated chapters in the South. Shocking. Yeah. In fact, there is five professions they would not admit into the Knights of Labor. They were bankers, land speculators, lawyers, liquor distributors, and gamblers. I mean, I guess gambler is is a profession. Is it, though? I mean, mean, there are, I guess there are professional poker players. And I mean, isn't that kind of what, like, professional gamers are now? Like, because you don't know if you're going to win. First of all, those are skilled athletes, and I cannot say that with a straight face. Yeah, they're basically gamblers. Because especially the ones who, like, do it com- do it not, like, as a Twitch pay-me-for-my-Twitch thing, but the ones who do it as, like, competitive and pay-me-if-I-win things. Like, that's mm. basically gambling, because you don't know if you're going to win. Oh, my God. I, I was reading something about, like, the performance-enhancing drugs. Like, all of them are, like, hopped up to the gills on Adderall. I mean, me too, but I actually have a prescription and a diagnosis. Then why aren't you professionally gaming? Because I get vertigo from first-person games. Maybe we should get you some medication for that vertigo. There's no there's no laws of professional game, gaming, baby. I think I could do well at professional in 64 Mario Kart. Ooh, we should start stretch goal. Um, once we get the thousand reviews, uh, we will have we will just start our Mario Kart stream in which we get a wa- watch Maddie school me repeatedly in Mario Kart. Only 991 reviews to go. Yep, it'll happen. That's definitely going to happen. <laughs> Sorry if you can hear Fezzik purring. He's an aggressive yeah. purr. They also did not allow Asian members. We'll get back to that. And th- well, when, what year is this? This was in the eighteen. This was in the eighteen eighties. So this is railroads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, for better or for worse, Powderly was a very ineffective leader, and there was almost no like central leadership or goal for any of these remote chapters. Uh, yeah, they had between seven hundred and eight hundred thousand members in eighteen eighty six. Um, yeah, no central leadership. So basically every individual group was doing what they wanted to do, more or less. Mm-hmm. Except for gambling and lawyering. <laughs> they were on their own. So naturally they did a lot of different things. The big main push that a lot of groups had was for the eight hour workday. Oh, oh, is he going? I, I think so. Yep, there he goes. That heavy thud was Fezzik. Yeah, we're so, working on the diet. <sighs> so yeah, they worked for the eight hour. Now actually Americans had been pushing for limits on work hours since 1791. And now Draco's fighting with Fezzik. We are having a very cat-interrupted episode. It's been a while since we've had yeah, one. That's, I know, it's been at least two episodes. <laughs> American workers have been pushing for limits on work hours since 1791. Now, actually, the first modern parade was organized by the Knights of Labor, their Chicago chapter, in 1886. On May 1st, 
and it was in it was for the eight hour workday that it ate eighty thousand people marched in this and their big chant was eight hour day with no cut in pay because there had been some uh ineffective pushes for eight hour workdays like with federal workers that had them get pushed to having an eight hour workday but it also resulted in pay cuts and it was largely unenforceable and it just didn't work out well so it had been ineffective up until this point this was a first major push and the day after this, they were joined by 350,000 workers in 12, 1,200 factories in a general strike all across America. And lots of places actually did get an eight-hour workday after this. Most places with no cuts in pay. Some places with an agreed-upon cut in pay for the re- reduction in hours. They had a fairly successful successful push for the eight-hour workday. It was the biggest one yet. It still wasn't a thing in most places and wouldn't be for about another 50 years. But, you know, it was a big push. And, of course, they were a big proponent for women's rights in the workplace. Really? Yeah. Uh, one of their actual leaders was a woman. She was the president of her local branch of about 1,500 people. And she was named the head of the Department of Women's Work. Okay. Which is not like women's work, like, around the house women's work. Like, women, like, working in factories and women in, like, the labor market. I read a funny tongue-in-cheek opinion piece about how we should never have let men back into the workforce after world war one or world war two i can't remember which one it referenced i'd accept that i'd take it it was like you know they're just too emotional to be here like look who's having the emotional outbursts yeah they are they absolutely are and really also in public places too because i know like karen is getting all the bad rap or she was um back when the world ended and my connection to society also ended (laughs) But yeah, Karen was getting a bad rap. But, you know, I worked public service for a long time. Chad is there too. It's the, it is the like middle-aged white man who's the real problem. I think it depends on the industry you're in. Yeah. And also it depends on how you're defining problem, especially if you're a woman working Mm. there. Because, you know, the ones who yelled more were the women, but the ones who would hold me hostage and talk to me more were the men. Her name was Leonora Berry. Cool name. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. She would actually go... She was commissioned to go in and investigate uh, women's working conditions. Wanted equal pay for equal work. That was her goal. That is unacceptable. If women didn't want to be paid less, they shouldn't have chosen jobs like woman engineer. Yeah. 135 years later, we are still having the same problems. Oh, yeah. I, I, had to, I looked up uh, nursing salaries this week and it was bananas. Same job. She was also the first woman to be paid as a... First woman to be paid as a labor organizer, but she was also the only woman to hold national office at the time. She thought women should be working at home and not in the workplace, but she did recognize that that was an impossibility with modern life, and women needed to have jobs. And this is in the 1800s. This is in the 1800s. It was already becoming a, we need to have women in the workplace just to survive. Yeah. She um, was said, it's like, there's people starving who are like, have no opportunity, and this would prevent prevent women from falling into the yawning chasm of immorality. I mean, that's a good point because, I mean, if you don't work in a factory and you have to make money, you have, you know, limited options that often, historically and now, have included sex work. Yeah. So she was, that was... Not that there's, you know, I mean, it's, if you, if you choose to do that and you're doing it safely, more power, but... Yeah, but she did hit two big obstacles. One was she wasn't given access to factories and she was like just dismissed by the largely male factory owners Mm -hmm. and was not really allowed in. And the women themselves were fairly apathetic and thought that no change was possible and were resigned to their position and didn't want to do anything to change it. We still face that today because we just, women and men, men in labor positions just kind of get beaten down. 
mm-hmm. any position after a while. It's like, really. I, I'm not going to work to make it better because it'll just make things worse. I'll be retaliated against. Was yeah, retaliation. What she ran into. Yeah. yeah. Uh, she did have one big legislative victory, which was the Pennsylvania Factory Inspection Act, which made it so people could actually go in and infe- inspect these factories and make sure things were being run properly, rather than just the, oh, yeah, we're doing all right. Don't pay attention to them. Uh, she was also a big proponent of prohibition. Yeah. Uh, she resigned from her position in 1890 when she got married and it effectively ended the Department of Women's Work. Oh, that sucks. But she didn't completely go out of, like, you know, the public eye. She'd actually go around and giving speeches about the dignity of labor and, you know, women in the workplace. And she actually gave a big speech at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, also about the dignity of labor. Um, it is not known if H.H. H. Holmes was in attendance. <laughs> Oh, man, he, I have a feeling he would not have been too keen on women in the workplace. I mean, well, it depends on the workplace. I wonder if he had women who, like, worked for him. Yeah, some of them, I think some of the people, like, that were, like, murdered by him in his murder palace were female maids he had hired. He got reincarnated as Kevin McAllister. Yeah. And, of course, they also worked towards uh, women, universal women's suffrage was mm-hmm. one of their big organizational stated goals. Yeah, and that's one of the things in history classes is we skip over things that came before and focus on the last year or two of most issues. Mm-hmm. Time, I get it, but... Yeah. So, uh, the, the Knights of Labor also wanted to end child labor and convict labor. Mm-hmm. I didn't really find much about if they were successful or not with that. Well, I mean, we know for a fact that convict labor is still an issue. Yeah. But we're going to go back to what I said earlier. Let's talk about the whole no Asians thing. Oh, God. I don't want to. Powder and the Knights of Labor were vehemently anti-Asian. One of their big pushes for laws was for the Chinese Exclusion Act, Uh which prevented immigration of Chinese laborers into America. The Knights of Labor thought it was good for American workers because it kept these lower wage uh, Chinese workers out of the labor market in America. So it protected American jobs, which... Thank goodness that's entirely over today. Yeah. Even though they worked hard to keep new Asians from coming to America, they really did not like the Asians that were already here. Um, In 1885, the Knights of Labor in Tacoma, Washington, violently expelled the Chinese workers, which were about one-tenth of the city's population. Oh, God. Um, And then there was the Rock Springs Massacre. We never learned about this one. Yeah. The Union Pacific Coal Department was hiring lots of Chinese laborers because they worked they worked for less than the uh, white immigrant laborers who were coming in, mostly from Finland in this part of the country. The white miners were not happy about this, and about 150 white men, mostly members of the Knights of Labor, started a riot. They went in and just kicked people out of the work sites and then invaded their ha- their houses and like where they lived. And at the end of this, 28 miners were uh, Chinese miners were confirmed dead. But the real number might have been closer to 40 or 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, 15 were injured and 78 homes were destroyed. The ones who were not killed outright were beaten and robbed. They were just take all of their money, gold and silver. Nice. Yeah. Uh, And we're not going to let you work. And we're also going to take your money so that you are just living on the streets now. And the ones who were killed, it was almost like an animalistic fury. Mm-hmm. Like their corpses were mutilated in horrible ways. Like some were burned alive, scalped, branded, mutilated, decapitated, dismembered, hanged. One white miner was in a te- saloon afterwards showing off his trophy, which was a severed penis and testicles. Oh God. Uh, there was some outcry after this massacre, mostly against the Chinese. 
Awesome. Uh, Anti-Chinese violence broke out all over the Puget Sound area after this. The local newspapers largely defended the act. The New York Times was one of the few papers to actually be against it, saying that this town should be, like, destroyed and salted into the earth, like Sodom and Gomorrah after these actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and some of the ones that some of the ones that did speak out against it were still more sympathetic to the white miners than they should have been. Uh, Sixteen men arrested were arrested in total. Nobody was convicted. Some people were fired from Union Pacific afterwards, but that was really the extent of like punishment for this. So let's talk about the decline of the Knights of Labor now. <laughs> so remember when start at the beginning when I mentioned that parade. Uh-huh. That was the beginning of the end. Okay. Because the Haymarket Square riot happened three days later. Uh, this could be an entire episode. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of this one. Yeah. So I'm just going to give you the highlights. Uh, there had been some confrontations with the police and some strikers in the days before. Uh, one person was dead and several others were severely injured. So tensions were high. And Haymarket is in... Chicago. Mm-hmm. When the police moved to break up the uh, strikers, a unknown individual threw a bomb into the police. And it was quite literally one of those round bombs with the fuse sticking oh, out God. like you see in cartoons. I, I think I was vaguely aware that those were real, but... Yeah, th- th- those were real. They're just cartoon bomb. Awesome. Uh, so after the bomb went off and some police officers were killed and injured, both sides started shooting at each other. Yeah. In the end... Seven police officers had died and four of the strikers and dozens were injured. The blame was placed almost instantly on anarchists. <laughs> anarchists, who are also labor organizers, were immediately arrest- arrested for helping make the bombs, even though none of them had actually thrown them and there was little evidence about anything involved in this. They were arrested and tried. Again, practically no evidence was involved. Four were hung. Uh, one committed suicide in jail. And three were eventually pardoned by the governor because the trial was a farce and there was no evidence. Mm-hmm. This was years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The blame for this and the outrage over these anarchists and labor movement fell largely on the Knights of Labor. And their membership just floundered after that and never really recovered. Uh, yeah. By the way, this, this riot is the origin of like the May Day labor celebrations. The Knights of Labor existed until 1949 when their last chapter dissolved, dissolved and they had about 50 members. So yeah, that was the Knights of Labor. Awesome. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. That went like, I took a left fucking turn there. Yeah. Austin kept saying to me, it's like two, two massacres. How does everything have to do with massacres or genocide? Yeah. And just, oh my, the, the anti-Asian sentiment in America in the 1880s is a topic that is never covered in the school and it kind of should be yeah it's kind of briefly mentioned during learning about the railroad and then that's it and it definitely carried over too until like you know the japanese internment and which is also brushed over and then even now you can see some of that like weird prejudice that's like just clung to us like just awful miasma when like there was people like when we were accosting chinese people or asian americans anywhere when the coronavirus started because they were blaming them for it for uh, some stupid reason. Yeah, they're like, I've lived here for 30 years and I have not been back to China recently, but cool. It's like And all and like and also, you know, not all Asian people are Chinese. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was the Knights of Labor, the uh, group that did a lot for labor movement and are part of the reason we have Labor Day, but not great. Like even by the standards of their time. Not great. Mm-hmm. But they, they did some good women's stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So this was definitely one of those complicated ones. 
Most things are. Yeah, it's... Most of my stuff today is complicated. Oh, good. We're, we're going to have a great feel-good episode. I mean, it's better than last week's in terms of how it feels. No Song in the South? No. Okay. Disney actually doesn't come up at all this week. Good. I mean, they do own everything now. I feel like Disney actually somehow owns our podcast. Uh, don't tell them that. because Well, I mean, we're really getting underpaid if that's the case. Yeah. Um, no, they're not going to pay us. They just want money from us. Mm. So are you ready for some questions? Sure. All right. Will the fact that the Knights of Labor started out as a secret society be on the test? Yeah. Will the fact that they had both African-American and female members be on the test? Oh, yeah. Will the Chinese Exclusion Act be on the test? It depends on the angle that the teacher is being forced to take. And, uh, will the ridiculous round cartoon bombs were a real thing be on the test? Yes. And will the fact that we've been trying to get equal pay for women for 135 years be on the test? No, we can't talk about that in schools. Oh, no. Especially your teachers, because that... Although, in most places, teachers are paid based on the salary schedule, so it doesn't matter what genitals you have. You're paid based on your years of experience, level of education, and continuing education credits. All teachers are paid equally poorly. Don't worry. Yes. Today is part two of my Chadwick Boseman-inspired history of Black participation and representation in film. And as I went through, there is so much more information from the 70s to now than there was for the beginning through the 60s. So this is actually going to be a three-parter because I'm already leaving an embarrassing amount out. You are going to listen to this and go, what the actual fuck, Maddie? Why are you leaving this out? And feel free on social media, tell us what you think the most important players, the most important movies, most important TV shows were from different decades because I don't want you to be here for six hours and this could all be its own entire yeah. series. And again, we, we want to hear about this. Like, we, we like feedback because, you know, we are insecure millennials. <laughs> no, insecure millennials don't like feedback. See, I love feedback. It has. T- it took me until my 20s to be comfortable with feedback. Oh, see, I've always been comfortable with feedback because it's like, cool, I don't want to waste my time doing this wrong. Yeah. See, I didn't get that kind of feedback. Oh. For my parents, I did. For my parents, it was like, let's improve. See, but... that's like, there was a, those are the people I never got that type of feedback from. <laughs> well, my sources today, Hollywood Black Book, Wikipedia, IndieWire, National Museum of African American History and Culture, Biography.com, IMDb, Vulture, Marymount University, Roger Ebert, NPR, Mental Floss Perspectives on Black Popular Culture, which is a book. Blackpast.org, fandom.com, Good Morning America, Time, Drunk History, Shortlist, and Hollywood Reporter. Wait, Drunk History? Yes. Ooh, cool. And that comes up right at the beginning, actually. And like last week, I highly recommend the book Hollywood Black. You can get it for $4 on Kindle or in hardback for a lot more. Or at your local library. Or at your local library, probably. Took me a while to find it. I did find it. Uh, the full title, just just search for Hollywood Black. The full title won't pop up. So if you are really interested in this topic, read that book. It seems to be the most comprehensive single resource for this. But before I get into the 70s, I want to mention one thing I left out of the 60s because I thought it happened in the 70s. So I didn't look into it. In 1968, Star Trek aired an episode called Plato's Stepchildren. <gasps> While there's some debate, this is generally considered the first interracial kiss on TV. That's... There were, were some in England before. Frank Sinatra kissed Sammy Davis Jr. on TV, but it was a cheat kiss. And then, of course, it kind of depends on your definition of race for Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Because, to use the horrible word, when you look at Desi Arnaz, you, he could, quote unquote, pass. Especially on black and white television. Especially on black and white television. But they never hid the fact that he wasn't from America and he wasn't white. So it just kind of depends on your definition of race. But this was, and then of course the Frank Sinatra one, he he kissed him on the cheek. It was clearly like a joke. This was definitely like the first serious kiss on American television between a black and a white character. 
The kiss occurred between James T. Kirk, who was played by William Shatner, and Lieutenant Uhura, who was played by Nichelle Nichols, and NBC was pissed. They thought their Southern viewers wouldn't accept this. And I mean, I recently watched this episode of Drunk History about this, and they explained that NBC insisted on shooting the episode both with a kiss and without a kiss, despite Nichelle Nichols and William Shatner going, no, this is really important. This needs to happen. This is important to the culture. So for the scene, the shot without a kiss, Shatner made eye contact with the camera so that they couldn't use it. And crossed his eyes. Did he? Yeah. I I don't remember remember that that. from Drunk History. There's also been some debate between Nichelle and William about whether or not they actually kissed or if their lips didn't actually touch but either way like the audience interprets it as a kiss she says that it happened he says it didn't and then sometimes he says it did you don't know what to think with him in the end the episode received one of the largest fan mail responses and according to one report only one was negative And it was kind of a wussy negative from a Southerner who wrote, I am totally opposed to the mixing of the races. However, anytime a red-blooded American boy like Captain Kirk gets a beautiful dame in his arms that looks like Ahura, he ain't gonna fight it. I kind of doubt that was the only negative response they got. I have a feeling that was the only negative response that was passed on. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like regardless of that, it was not especially negative. It was more positive than negative. Mm -hmm. So into the 70s. With the 70s, of course, came blaxploitation. As with most things, this genre had its benefits and its drawbacks. Blaxploitation films were a genre that featured black characters in the leads as heroes. They were also the first to have really black-driven soundtracks, featuring funk music and soul music. There were subgenres, including crime, martial arts and action, westerns, horror, prison, comedy, nostalgia, courtroom, musicals, and slave exploitation. which I've heard black exploitation. I've never heard slave exploitation. The first two major black exploitation films were Sweets, Sweet Sweetback's Badass, which has a bunch of A's and S's in it, Uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and of course, Shaft. We still reference Chef today, but I'd kind of imagine that anybody born like in the mid '80s or later has never seen this. Not everybody. I have. But most. I have. I have. I've never seen the original Shaft. I saw the remake. Yes. And I think there's a movie coming out that's got like Samuel L. Jackson playing Shaft, and he's got like his like son who is. I don't know. It. I don't remember this. I just saw a trailer for it, and it looked stupid, and I kind of wanted to see it. <laughs> The positive thing about these movies is that they were not only able to feature black actors and stories in a real way, but they also allowed a space space for racial issues to be explored for a broader audience. Uh, many people credit the black power movement for either creating or inspiring these films, and there's a lot of evidence to back that up. And with they were saying that without the black power movement, these films that featured black actors as heroes couldn't have occurred. However, there are those who view this genre as exploitation. It's why it's in the name. Even the NAACP was part of the Coalition Against Blaxploitation. Though the genre largely shed stereotypes like mammies, they perpetuated other stereotypes like all black men are pimps. Uh, and as I mentioned, there were slave exploitation films, which as IndieWire put it are, quote, by definition, movies that offer crassly exploitative representations of oppressed slave protagonists. And the movie that kept coming up, because I was like, well, what the hell is slave exploitation? And what's the difference between that and a movie about slavery? And it's a really gray area. Like, Django Unchained is widely known as a black exploitation film. Some consider it slave exploitation, some don't. But the movie that kept coming up as an example was Mandingo. This was controversial even when it came out. Roger Ebert called it racist trash, 
But others viewed it as a fantastic movie about racial issues. And this was the inspiration for Django. Mandingo, though, has become a stereotype in film in the vein of Mammy's and Uncle Tom's, according to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And that is Mandingo equals Black Brute, a Black man who is driven by sexual desire of white women and violence. And while Mandingo, the movie, according to my research, doesn't seem to have that as the intention, that's the result. And it kind of makes you wonder if this is part of why we have this black brute image in our heads continuing today. I mean, I'm not saying racism wouldn't exist without this movie, but it can it it can perpetuate and worsen. It gave it like a a name. Yeah. And a mascot. Yeah. But the 70s wasn't just black exploitation. More black filmmakers were working than ever. And that was across all genres. And this was when Matt Robinson joined Sesame Street as Gordon. Uh, he was typically a screenwriter. He went on to work on Sanford and Son, Eight is Enough, and The Cosby Show. Movies across genres also portrayed black men as desirable partners for the first time with both black and white women as their romantic partner. But black women were often underrepresented. Or if they were in the movie, they were sexual objects and not characters. There were a couple of films kind of like Foxy Brown and Cleopatra Jones that did give them power. In some of these movies, it was still kind of a sexually driven power in some movies no, but black exploitation films that featured women, regardless of the sexuality thing, the characters were smart, they were fearless, they were the heroes. And of course, there was Diana Russ, who had shown up in the 1960s as a member of the Supremes. She began acting in movies like Lady Sings the Blues, which was based on the life of Billie Holiday, which shows the torment that black artists went through in Billie's day. And of course, that torment still happened and happens. There was also Cicely Tyson, who appeared in a ton of movies, including the movie Sounder, for which she was called, quote, the first great black heroine on screen by film critic Pauline Kael. Both Diana and Cicely were nominated for the Best Actress Oscar, the first time two black women had ever been nominated for the award in the same year. Diana, uh, they, they didn't win. Uh, Diana would go on to star in classics like The Wiz and Cicely won an Emmy for the autobiography of Jane Pittman in 1974. Uh, we can't get through the 70s though without talking about Roots. Roots was a t TV miniseries that came out in 1997. I am pretty sure I've seen it, but I was too young to understand what I was watching. And now I want to actually sit and watch it, even though it's like 30 hours long. That's yeah. an exaggeration, but it's quite long and you need to have the emotional and like actual time bandwidth for it. I, I remember watching, getting it from the library on uh, VHS tapes. Uh-huh. And like, I, mean, I think it was, I think it was two or three tapes. It was long. Yes, it was originally, I think, eight. Yeah, it was originally eight episodes. It's now been shortened to six because some of the episodes were two hours, some of them were one hour. So they combined the one hour episodes into six, yeah. into the remaining six. The miniseries earned 37 Emmy nominations, won nine. It also won a Golden Globe, a Peabody, and earned the highest Nielsen ratings for the time. And to this day is the third highest rated episode for any TV series and the second most watched series finale in history. What are the other ones? I don't know, but I'm 99% sure that the number one most watched is the finale of MASH. Okay. I know I've heard, like, I know that that was a big deal. I'm pretty sure the finale of MASH is number one. Okay. I'd imagine the finale of Friends is probably in the top five. Yeah. I watched it. I cried. And I know, like, I, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, that show was kind of problematic even in its time, although it wasn't, it was also progressive for its time, but I loved it. And I, it had been like my safe spot for 10 years. So I cried. <laughs> this Roots was the first show to be nominated in every Emmy acting category. It starred people like LeVar Burton, Olivia Cole, Louis Gossett Jr. And I hope it's Louis, not Louis, sorry. And Ben Vereen, who you watched in Pippin not long ago. 
Yeah. Um, although he has proven to be, he's been me too'd. Oh no. Um, among many others. After viewing it, ABC's executives freaked out because of the level of brutality. Because this show didn't pull any fucking punches. Not a single one. And thought it would be a major loss for them. So instead of spreading it out like one or one episode a week or two episodes a week, they aired it eight days straight. Knowing that people would not, you know, have one to two hours to just sit down and watch TV for eight days straight every single night. And this was before you could, I mean, actually on that 70s show, we see them trying to record it and then Kitty messes it up. Oh, no, Red, Red messes, messes it up because he left the tape on top yeah, of Red the... Yeah, Red messed it up and because Kitty was the one who wanted to watch it. <laughs> um, I think it was the finale. So you could tape it. Most people didn't have access to that stuff. So, but people, they were wrong. People sat down and watched it. And, but these ABC executives were so afraid that white audiences wouldn't want to watch the series that they cast familiar, comforting white TV actors. Like, I didn't write them down, but I'm pretty sure one was like the dad from the Brady Bunch. And this was actually a really smart move on their part because most of the black actors were little or completely unknown at the time. So this would draw an audience regardless of what the content was. And they did, however, make some, not all, but some of them a little more sympathetic than they were in the um, source material. And they created a new uh, character named Captain Thomas Davies, who was played by Ed Asner, who I, I I always enjoy watching Ed Asner. But he was invented and he was a slave ship character with a conscience to make it seem like not all white people are bad. He was still a slave ship captain. Yeah. But they gave him a conscience because they were like, we need to show something in here that's some white person with a conscience. So they created this character, which I think is actually a smart way to do it. Not try to change one of the existing characters. Mm -hmm. The series follows a family from the time Kunta Kinte, played by LeVar Burton, is brought to America on a slave ship all the way through emancipation. So it's him and then his kids and then his kids and so forth. They showed the brutality under which the slaves lived, including brutal attacks, rapes, separations from their families. If it happened, it was probably in roots. The things that people wanted to play down or pretend didn't happen were there. In 2016, an article in Vulture said, quote, for many white viewers, the miniseries amounted to the first prolonged instance of not merely being asked to identify with cultural experiences that were alien to them, but to actually feel them. By watching Kunta and his fellow slaves struggle to be free, either physically or emotionally, only to realize that in a country that had institutionalized white supremacy and had no compelling compelling reason to change its ways, it just wasn't possible. So this is the first time white people had had to actually take a deep look at this and go, oh, this is what people are experiencing. And it, you know, even allies today, we can't understand. But yeah. stuff like this can get into your brain. There would be a later sequel called Roots the Next Generations. And the History Channel inexplicably remade this like a couple years ago instead of just replaying the original. And they were like, it's part of our celebration of this movie. I'm like, then just show the goddamn movie. Yeah, you don't have to remake everything. Some things are fine. Yeah. And I mean, I have, I, I've seen this one, like I said, but I was much younger. I But I saw that they were remaking it. I'm like, I'm not going to watch that. And I love the History Channel, but I'm like, Mm. I don't know if they're just if ABC said no, but I feel like ABC can't like ABC couldn't have said no because they got the rights. So just replay the movie. Like if you need to do some remastering, go ahead. But yeah. Now, all of this effort, though, has been undermined a little bit by people digging into the original author's life because the story was supposed to be based on his family and finding discrepancies between what he wrote in the book and what actually happened. Finding some of it was probably just known falsehoods and some of it was family legend. However... I don't really feel like this should be undermining things when we're still calling a child called it fact. 
Yeah, this is like family legends are a part of family history, and this yeah, and like, and also it can if you realize that part of your family history is legend and not truth, it can be like really jarring to your identity. Yeah, and even if it is somewhat fictionalized, we celebrate fictionalized works all the time. So let's not try to undermine something just because it's not all one hundred percent true. Now, if it was a lie, like what was that book, Million Little Pieces? Uh, million, yeah, Million Little Pieces with the sprinkles and on yeah the, the uh that oprah got so mad about and child called it he still maintains it's true his siblings are like yeah our parents weren't great but they weren't monsters but they weren't making us eat feces so um yeah the 70s also brought richard pryor who obviously we when you look at richard pryor it's a complicated look back but his influence is undeniably important. He had a really rocky start, but got an Emmy nomination for writing for The Lily Tomlin Show and got an Emmy for writing a comedy special starring her. He also established a successful stand-up career, which had material that people hadn't really heard before because it was full-blown X-rated. And it was just littered with the N-word because he looked at it as a way of reclaiming it and making fun of people who used it in a serious way. However, after he returned from a trip to Africa and realized this is not a word that applies in many, many cases, he stopped using it. Um, Even with all of this, his comedy became overwhelmingly positively rated. He actually won three Grammys for his stand-up albums. The story about him being on fire cracks me up every time. He did that to himself. It was a suicide attempt. I know, but the way he tells it's really funny. Oh, I, I haven't watched that or okay. seen that. Um, he used his comedy as an opportunity to explore uh, racial issues. He first became a bona fide movie star for Silver Streak with Gene Wilder. Now, people were not expecting this to work because he and Gene Wilder had such drastically different styles. But it was just back and forth, back and forth. They would work again together later. He also worked on Blazing Saddles. And he was supposed to play, um, oh, what's the character's name that I'm thinking about? Bart? The Sheriff, I think. The Sheriff? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I think it was Bart? I think that's who yeah. he was supposed to play. But apparently he had a bad attitude. So he wrote a lot of the movie, but he was not in it. <laughs> After dealing with a shit ton of mental and physical health problems through the late 70s and early 80s, he returned in films in the 80s, became one of the highest black actors of all time. Like he was in Superman 3 and he got paid more than Christopher Reeve, according to rumor. And we know he got paid $4 million. Wow. Uh, so prior, if there hadn't been for him, we wouldn't have many of our black comedians today like Eddie Murphy, who also is controversial, but again, we can't deny the effect that he has had on comedy as a whole. And, you know, the music industry, because his girl likes to party all the time. (laughs) Oh, God, I'd forgotten that he wrote music. I I made you listen to that for the first time the other day. No, she brings up Eddie Murphy's music career way more often than anyone other than Eddie Murphy should. (laughs) I think it's funny. Like, I think it's hilarious. Not that this guy specifically tried to have a music career, just these people who tried to have music careers, like Bruce Willis tried to have a music career. Yeah. And he actually, I mean, both of them are perfectly fine singers. Bruce Willis is a good singer. Yeah. and But you can also kind of see why they these particular ones couldn't make the transition. It's really hard to transition yeah. from acting to move, or from acting to music and not the other way. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to say this now that we're off, now that we're off topic. Um, the entire time where you're talking about very serious things, Fezzik was chewing on my heel <laughs> and I couldn't react to it. He left, but he's... Oh, what a shit. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, so this does bring me into the 80s, which was a massive decade for Black actors and filmmakers. This decade alone could be a semester in college. Like, so I'm going to piss some people off because I'm leaving a lot out. The same is going to happen in the 90s. Feel free, tweet at us, tell us like, hey, this is a really good one and here's what your listeners should know about it. 
we like we want people to know stuff. We just don't want you to be here for six hours. So many people we still see in films or remember from the recent past first showed up in the 1980s. It doesn't mean they hadn't been working in the 70s or even the 60s, but this is when they came into the, I am such a hand gesture. Yeah. Like I'm like coming dangerously close to smacking Austin in the face. She does that a lot. Like she gestures and hits me. Like it's not on purpose. Don't worry about me, but she'll be gesturing and she'll just slap me. It's Kind of funny. I did punch him in the face in my sleep the other night, though. It's because she thought I was the cat. Well, the cat jumped on me and scared me, so I was kind of like swinging my arm because I didn't realize it was the cat either. I was like, oh no, I'm being attacked, and I punched him in the face. This was like a full minute after the cat had run by, too. I was asleep! Uh, Anyway, 1980s. The 80s, no matter what anybody says about them, was a conservative and racist time. And because of this, movies ignored the systemic racism that was happening outside. So they did have movies with black characters. They had some movies that explored this, but the majority were like, yeah, let's put a black actor in this role and then not mention that he's black. So the 80s, yeah. And the 90s were super racist too. And God, when when I hear my students talk about it, they're like, the 90s seemed really chill. That's the time I would want to grow. And I'm like... Let me tell you about some things. Like, yeah, there were some great things in the 90s, like truly great things. But it was also still incredibly homophobic and like literally almost all social issues have at least improved a little until our current regime got in charge. Anyway, 1982, An Officer and a Gentleman premiered starring Richard Gere and Deborah Winger with Louis slash Louis, sorry, I should have looked it up. Gossett Jr. as Richard Gere's drill sergeant, Emile Rowley. This was the one of the first, if not the first instance in which a Black actor was cast in a role that was not written for a Black character. It was a character. Anybody can audition. He beat out prominent white actors for this role. Um, some reviews I read said that they should have worked some of that into it to kind of explain who his character was, show it and show the struggles that he had gone through to get to this position. But that ultimately wasn't the point of the movie. And even with this character that had very little backstory, he was what people remembered from the movie for the most part. I already remember is him picking up someone and walking out of the door. I've never seen this movie. I've just seen the... Um, there was a bit of a Huck Finn, Finn fixation that I mentioned last week with the older wise black man teaching the young white boy how to survive in the harsh world. But this showed something that wasn't as seen on film or in real life often. Men of different races forming a significant emotional genuine bond. So yeah, he was his boss and he did guide him through struggles, but they were literally becoming friends and bonded and caring about each other. We don't like, like, society doesn't like seeing men forming these strong relationships regardless in film, but we especially don't see it across races a little better now. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like, I feel like the Fast and the Furious series has actually been a little bit helpful in some Oh my, no, it's, Fast and the Furious is great for that reason. It's showing like deep emotional bonds between men and like male friendships are weird. Like, I don't even know if I can express how weird they are in a podcast. Uh Uh-huh. Like just, and kind of like normalizing it in film has been nice. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like action movies are a good way to do that. Like buddy cop comedies are also great for that. Oh my God. I don't talk about Lethal Weapon. I love the Lethal Weapon. Um, Wait, am I thinking about the right... I'm too old for this shit. Yes. Okay. We're talking rigs. For a second, I was thought I was th- I thought I was talking about Naked Gun, and I'm like, no, no, Lethal Naked, Weapon. Let's let's not Naked talk Gun about totally different. Let's not talk I about thought, OJ. I, I thought I had said Naked Gun, and I'm like, because I love those too, but no, Lethal Weapon. I don't talk about them just because I don't have time. But I think buddy cop comedies that 
feature actors who are different from each other in some way, uh, ethnicity or ability or sexuality, whatever. It's just showing, forming bonds in a way that's palatable for large audience. It's brilliant. Um, anyway, so that year, Gossett would become the first Black actor since Sidney Poitier to win a major Oscar, uh, which he got for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, then along came A Soldier's Story in 84, which is about a Black military officer and lawyer who is investigating the murder of a Black sergeant in Louisiana at the end of World War II. This is uh, where we get Denzel Washington from. I mean, he'd been around before, but yeah. this is where we get him from. This movie examined the effects of racism within the military, which is not something we talk about even today. And then we look at Fort Hood and are like, oh shit. Uh, Warner Brothers, Universal, and MGM all turned it down because they thought no one would want to see a black story set in World War II. Columbia did agree to take it on, but they were like, I don't want to. So the director, Norman Jewison, who was white, and we we still see this today a lot, like white directors and creators telling black stories, um, Quentin Tarantino. Oh, it's, and, it's because most directors are just white men. That's Yes, and not that most directors should be white men. It, They're it, the ones who have made it to the top. Yeah. There's like... If you go to like film school, you will see more diversity. Not, it's still kind of like STEM. You'll see, you won't yeah, see the diversity that would actually should be there, but. You'll see, and you'll see the diversity decline over time because of. Yeah. Racism, sexism, Racism, homophobia. And sexism. Yeah. Um, so Jewison, though, agreed to do the film for $5 million and take no salary for himself because he really wanted the story to get told. They filmed it in Arkansas. And then Governor Bill Clinton was like, what you guys doing? So he comes by to check it out. And he they told him what the movie was and that they didn't have any money. And he was like, okay, I think this is a really important story. So he sent the Arkansas Army National Guard in to be the extras for them in their full regalia. Because they couldn't afford extras, let alone the costumes they needed. So Clinton was like, I helped make this movie. Uh, the film was nominated for several Oscars, didn't win any. Despite this, like with Roots and A Soldier Story, because, um, oh, this movie was really successful. That's It was very successful. Big Hollywood bosses didn't think white audiences wanted to see a movie that was mo almost entirely filled with black people. They continued to have black heroes, but they wouldn't have largely black casts because what white people are, white, white person is going to want to see that? Then Eddie Murphy was like, fuck you, with 1988's Coming to America. <laughs> yes, he had done other things before. I'm not ignoring the fact that he did things like Beverly Hills Cop and SNL before this. This is what I have time for. Coming to America was about an African prince named Akeem, and I believe they're actually working on a sequel right now. They are. It's Coming to America too. <laughs> I could have sworn there was a sequel before this. But he came to America to look for a wife. The film ended up making $160 million worldwide. As the book Hollywood Black put it, it proved that moviegoers could be far ahead in their views of what a Black movie hero could be of those who ran the studios. So the audience were, was ready. It was the studio heads that were not. The 80s also brought us Spike Lee. Though it was not his first film, 1989's Do the Right Thing is considered one of the most important films in history by the Library of Congress and is in the National Film Registry. Actually, a lot of these movies are, and I don't mention it every time. Uh, this one was the first one, I think, of the list. But it, it, focus, it focus on, focuses on racial tensions that start with a question uh, from a Black customer to an Italian pizza owner. Pizza shop owner. He doesn't just own pizza. It's like, <laughs> as, as a Swedish pizza owner, I can relate to this. Um, and it turns into full-blown riots and police violence. Um, sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Walker Valdez of Marymount University says, quote, Director Spike Lee chose to create a film that is able to both entertain and emotionally resonate with an audience by pointing out that when racial and social disparities are not properly addressed by those in power, they can ultimately lead to acts of extreme violence by those who feel powerless. 
So I think that's important too because it. At, okay, I'm gonna admit I haven't seen this movie. I did a lot of research for this. I haven't seen this movie, and I didn't have time to sit down and watch 20 movies this week. But what I know, right? But the idea I got from this and from life in general is that nobody wants—not nobody, but the majority of people—don't want violence. They would much prefer to handle things through discussion, negotiation, or problems just going away. Because wouldn't we all just want that? But when you are constantly oppressed, it can turn to rage. And that doesn't matter if it's systemic oppression or individual oppression. Like, this is why kids act out at school. Um, especially kids of color or kids from high poverty or kids who are just different. And the teachers, you know, buy into they deserve to be bullied, but unsad sadly does happen so these are the kids who end up in in a lot of trouble because they've been oppressed for so long that they it bursts out of you like we've all been there yeah <laughs> um but when it's systemic it's it's more there was an outcry against the movie because people were saying if we show this movie it will inevitably lead to the black people rioting which of course spike lee was like you really think that black people can't handle a movie without rioting fuck you you don't see people going saying we can't show these arnold schwarzenegger movies everybody's gonna want to buy guns and kill everybody i I mean flash forward to now but that's not because of arnold schwarzenegger movies no it's not because of arnold schwarzenegger arnold schwarzenegger has actually turned out to be comparatively frighteningly liberal yeah he remember when we hated the terrifying thing is he models himself after reagan and he is considered too liberal for mainstream republicans yeah but he's also like not grossly homophobic and yeah. also can't only focus on jelly beans. <sighs> yeah. Uh, but still, I know that watching the Terminator made me want to travel through time. And it made me want to fall from the sky naked and I know, land like, in a really uncomfortable position. Yeah. Land in an uncomfortable position. Then like demand people's clothes, beat up a bunch of bikers. And then that's just um, a normal Tuesday for me. Then eventually just jump into a, like a vat of molten steel and sink with my thumb sticking straight up in the air. Believe it or not, I actually have seen this movie. You've seen Terminator? I have. And Terminator 2? I believe so. And Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines? I don't know. I know I've seen the most recent one. And Terminator 4, Terminator versus Jackie Chan? Don't make shit up. It's, it's that one. And I know I've seen Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah. Which I didn't enjoy and that bummed me out. But it anyway. Had, it, had, uh, it, had Cersei, it had Cersei Lannister and... River Song. River Song. Or not... River Tam. River Tam. Both rivers are awesome. But yep. okay, we are so off topic. Let's get back on topic. Like, this is a super serious topic. This is just what our conversations are like in real life. Um, now, I've mostly focused on films, but I have to talk about a couple of TV shows. The first one is Reading Rainbow. This show premiered in 1983 on PBS Kids and was hosted by LeVar Burton, which may seem like an odd choice because he was known for Roots for the most part, which was definitely not kid-friendly, but he was really passionate about this project. That show is and was fucking amazing because it taught kids why to read, not Mm -hmm. how to read. You have to want to do something before you can be good at it. And this made you want to be good at this. In 2004, it was discovered that this was the most watched TV show in elementary school classrooms. It ran for 26 years and it still kind of like comes and goes a little bit now. I believe there's an app and... Of course, he has his podcast where he reads books I, for grownups. And- oh, I love LeVar Burton Reads. Like, there has been multiple times where I've just been, like, going through my day listening to podcasts. And then LeVar Burton comes on and reads a story that leaves me in tears in the middle of work. And people get really concerned. And I can't blame LeVar Burton because yes, he's... Yes, you can. I cannot blame Jordi LaForge for this. They'd be like, I'm listening to LeVar Burton Reads. They will all go, oh. Yeah. You work in a library. They will know. Yeah. Oh, 
so it ended was official. The reason it ended was officially because of money, but in reality, it's because George Bush instituted No Child Left Behind, which takes any focus away from how to from why to read and puts it all on how to read. This is how to spell. This is how to use phonics. This is how to ruin your ability to read and your desire to read. And I, the kids I've taught, grew up entirely in No Child Left Behind and then Common Core. There's been like six of them at this point since 2004, and they all don't teach you how to want to read. These are like, here's how to spell and here's how to use the phonics. And I'm actually going to cover in another episode why we teach reading wrong, like why it's wrong. Um, and I've seen the effects of this. Like I see how people our age read and write and see how kids read and write. I'm not talking about, you know, maturity of language. I'm not even talking about the evolution from appropriate, quote unquote, English to text speak. I actually, I think that's fascinating. It's I'm like English, that. but it's like, we don't speak like the, like, you know, we're not speaking like we're in goddamn Beowulf. English changes. Yeah. I'm talking about just actual desire and skill level, which should mm. be much higher than it is. But because they don't want to do it, it's been made this hard thing. They feel stupid and they're not learning how to use vocabulary. They're just learning how to recognize words. Reading Rainbow needs to come back or something like it does because kids need to want to read again because wanting is the first fucking step. Um, but anyway, according to Cecily Truitt, this was the first kid show, at least in America, to have a black host, but it was actually never about his blackness. It was about stories. It was about him thinking about when I was a kid, I was scared of riding a bike. So we need to read a story about riding a bike. And this made me think about something my fourth grade teacher said, which was she was watching TV and she saw a commercial with a black actor in it who had a headache and took aspirin. And that was the first time they ever realized that black people got headaches because all the commercials were it had white people. Her family was white. She'd never thought black people must get headaches too. So I kind of wonder if this isn't something that was secretly happening with Reading Rainbow. Wait, black people read books too? Black people are also scared of riding bikes when they're little? They like their kids like the same thing that my kids like? Mm -hmm. So I feel like this that was kind of this oh, yeah. underlying thing that was going on. You'll see like stuff like this too, like even in like children's books, like uh, Jack Ezra Keats's uh, Snow Day, mm -hmm. in which the protagonist is just a young African-American boy in his coat going around and sledding and playing in the snow. Mm -hmm. I, and I have to mention this one. Even though the primary person involved is a colossal piece of fucking garbage, and I take it extremely personally, I have to talk about The Cosby Show. Uh, it ran from 84 to 92, and it was about an upper middle class black family. And I loved the show, which is part of why I take it personally. I've seen him perform live. I take this so personally. Uh, Kid Me didn't know the show was groundbreaking. I just knew it was a story about a family. And I love that this show existed because it, I, because of shows like this, because I grew up for the most part in white neighborhoods, like a lot of white people did, it made me see, oh, okay, people who look different made living lives, as opposed to, wow, this is very different from mine. Now, of course, that's part of the controversy about this show. Um, really, for the first time ever, it was a black family that was succeeding and had a life similar to that of their white viewers. They had jobs, they had a nice house, they dealt with everyday issues. The book Perspectives of Black Popular Culture said that this show, as well as Cosby's other shows, quote, were trend breakers because each series presented it, either presented a different view of blacks in situation comedies by breaking previously held stereotypes. The Cosby Show discontinued the uh, using mechanical plots, disrespectful children, and generational conflict and presented two parent black families where both parents worked as professionals. Uh, Cosby didn't think that making jokes about racial differences was going to bring the races together, but he instead focused on the universal shared experiences that he thought would. 
they largely stayed away from racial issues. They did have bring a lot of black celebrities on, have a lot of black music. They had uh, books around the house. Like you would see them engaging with black culture, but it was rarely the focus of a, of a plot point. Um, but this is, again, where the controversy comes from. Like, you know, a white kid like me didn't have any questions to ask about this. And that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so people were saying, well, the Cosbys are in white face. Or they are trying to present pretend racism doesn't exist. Or they were trying to make people colorblind, which in the late 80s, early 90s was what we were taught. You should be colorblind. You shouldn't see race, which we are now knowing was a huge mistake. And but no matter how you want to look at it, the lasting effect the show has had is undeniable because it brought black people to the forefront of sitcoms without having them be any kind of stereotype. Uh, They, you know, weren't poor. They weren't angry. They weren't solely having generational conflicts. And so now we get shows like Blackish that show families who don't exist in that situation, but they now have permission to also address the fact that things are unequal, even if they can look equal from the outside. I'm actually going to stop here. I was going to stop in 1999, but we're running long on time. So I'm going to do the last 30 years next week. Dang. And next week, next as of next week, we'll be doing this for a year. Next week is episode 52. We've done an episode every week. And yeah, I have no idea what I'm going to do next week. So it'll be fun. Yeah. After this, I don't know what I'm going to do. Actually, it was so funny. I've been, I've been reading a book. Um, It's never caught. It's the story of Ona Judge, um, George Washington's escaped slave that he mercilessly pursued at the end of his life. Okay. I I was going to do a book report on that, but maybe not now. (laughs) I mean, we've got hopefully years and years. Yeah. And it's, if, if you've noticed a trend in which, you know, these, um like, you know, these white suburbanites did not learn much about black history in school. Yeah, that's definitely, some, that is a huge gap in our knowledge and they're hopefully worth fixing. Yes. And that's actually a big part of why we started this podcast. Uh, yeah. We were, you know, we would have discussions and one of us would know a little bit about something and the other one wouldn't. And we were realizing that's a problem. Yeah. Um, like if... If we hadn't made a conscious effort to become more aware, and I'm not saying that we're really good people or anything, it's just we mm. had the opportunity to make that effort where many people do not, um, we would be completely and totally ignorant instead of 99% ignorant. Yeah, we just want to be less ignorant. <laughs> yeah, that's all we're hoping for, which is also why we welcome feedback. And for my portion especially, I want to hear what do you think I missed that was important? I know what I missed that was important. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Tell, like... Tweet us at on the test pod or messages or post in our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash on the test pod, where you can search for us for it at will this be on the test and look for the statue that's getting a face palm. And or, tell, tell our listeners like, hey, this is also something you should check out. This is a person you should know about. And also read the book uh, Black Hollywood yeah. or Hollywood Black. Hollywood Black. Um, and then I already mentioned our Twitter and our Facebook. We also have an Instagram, which is at on the test pod. It's mostly pictures of cats. No, I'm putting, I'm actually at least putting up a weekly episode cover. It weirdly got rid of the word Swedish this week. So it looks like it's just talking about coffee prohibition in general, but. I mean, I think that was most of coffee prohibition outside of Utah. Yeah. Um, And then our website is on the testpod.com. The best way to reach us is probably Twitter. Or if if you need to reach us like directly and privately, it's uh, Facebook Messenger or direct message on Twitter. But please like engage. And then also please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, download because downloads are counted. Uh, Some places don't count just streaming. And yeah, we have been sitting at nine reviews on iTunes for a very long time, even though like our listenership has waxed and waned. But I know some of you haven't reviewed us. And it also says that I'm retaining 100% of my listenership every week. So come on, guys. Yeah. Just like one I mean, okay, I know a lot of you are, don't have Apple's Apple products. 
steps. Yeah, Steal one from a friend. Yeah. Um, next, again, I've suggested this before and I'm suggesting it again. Next time, you know, like once you're allowed to see your family again, when we all are, and they have problems with their phone because let's face it, they've been on their own for months now and it's nothing but viruses. When you eventually have to fix that, go on to iTunes and give us a good review from their phone. Yes. Give us a good review. Um, and any place you download from it gets counted towards us. And this is a labor of love. We are literally sitting here with a single mic in a cardboard box with broken pieces of bed on it. <laughs> we have a moving blanket behind us. We would really love to upgrade, give you better sound quality. We're, I know Austin dropped the jarring bell sound last week. Yeah. And we are looking, we are going to create something else. I've been, I've been playing around with the ukulele, so get ready for some awful hipster music. Yeah, we're actually planning on taking a couple weeks off, either week after next or the week after that, because we were planning on doing something different for our 52nd, yeah. and now we're not because mine's taking too long. Um, and we'll be using that time to revamp some stuff and come back stronger, but... It, the more listeners we get, the more chances we have to find someone to give us a little bit of money so we can upgrade things for you and not be losing money. So <laughs> that is my, you know, implore, imploration. I'm imploring you. The call to action. The call to action. We were supposed to end every episode with the call to action. So, we were? Yeah, that's... When? How? Rate, review, subscribe, visit our social media. That is a call to action. Tell your friends. That is a call to action. Sorry, a cat just crushed a testicle. I'll be back. Keep going. This is a... <sighs> well, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.